The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew in chapter 24 and verse 14. The 14th verse in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And this Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. We come this evening in our study of this 24th chapter of this gospel according to St. Matthew to this verse which in many ways is the most important and crucial verse in the entire chapter. Now we are looking at this chapter, let me remind you, because it is one of these chapters in the Bible that speaks so directly to us in our present immediate position and predicament. We are living in an age, I needn't take up time in reminding you of this evening, we are living in an age in which everything seems to be in the melting pot. An age of instability, an age of insecurity, an age of uncertainty. What a contrast it presents to what was so true, say, a hundred years ago, in the middle of the reign of Queen Victoria, when everything seemed so stable, everything seemed so solid and durable. But you and I are living in an age when all that is gone, and one wonders what one's going to hear next. Everything on which mankind used to feel that they could bank and on which they can rely seems to be vanishing before our very eyes. And in a way that has not happened for many, many centuries, people are talking again about the end of the world. The scientists are talking about it and saying that unless somehow or another man's use of this strange and alarming power that he's just discovered and unleashed, that unless somehow or another this can be controlled, that we may very well indeed be living in the last times and in the last days of the story of the human race. Now I say that scientists who are not Christians are speaking like that at this present time. Well, here we are. That's the position. And men and women are asking very naturally, well, what does it all mean? Can't something be done about it? What am I to do about all this? What is its relevance to me? Well, it is because in this chapter our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself deals with these very problems, this exact situation that I am thus calling your attention to it. Now, we've been looking at one aspect so far and mainly a negative one. We have seen that the first thing that is necessary is that we should be quite clear as to what our Lord did say as to what indeed the Christian message and gospel really do preach. We have found that to be necessary because there are such utter travesties of the gospel, current and indeed in a sense popular. And that there are so many who think that the whole business of this Christian gospel is uh, 
to change this condition in which the world is and to reform it and to put everything right. And so they fondly say that if only they can get people to believe the Christian ethic and to put it into practice, that all the bums will be destroyed and war will be outlawed by a great international agreement and we'll all live happily ever afterwards. Now, we've spent three Sunday evenings just in exploding, I trust, to your satisfaction, such a complete misrepresentation and travesty of the Christian message. No, we have seen, I think, perfectly clearly that the Bible teaches, as our Lord teaches here, that the world cannot be improved. The world cannot be reformed. There is no more fatal illusion than to imagine that it can. It's been the hope of mankind from the beginning that something can be done or will be done, but it's never been done, and according to our Lord here, it never will be done. There is no hope whatsoever of reforming or improving the world and ridding it of these problems and difficulties and calamities that are constantly threatening it. Indeed, the picture here is of a final calamity, a final destruction, and a final judgment. In other words, to put it in more biblical terms, the world as it is apart from God is under the wrath of God and will be punished. Now then, having seen that, we have come to the conclusion that what should be our urgent concern is this. Are we therefore, every one of us as individuals, irretrievably doomed to this destruction? That is to be the fate of the world? Well, very well, as we belong to the world and as citizens of the world, is that to be our fate? Can anything be done for us? Now then, that is the question that is answered in particular in this 14th verse of this great chapter. For here we are told that there is a way of escape and a way of deliverance. That our eternal destiny need not be irretrievably bound up with that of this sinful, evil world in which we live, which is under the wrath of God. And therefore the question confronting us at this moment is this. How can that be done? If there is a way of escape, what is it? Isn't that the urgent question? Isn't that the question that every intelligent person should be asking? If you really have been convinced by the biblical case that the world as it is, is irredeemable and is not going to be redeemed, but is doomed to final destruction. I say the intelligent question to ask is, well, how can I evade that and avoid that? How can I escape that? Is there any hope for me? Or might as, I as well say, as so many are saying, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's make the best of it while we are here. Try not to think too much, because it'll come soon enough in any case. Let's just have a good time. Well, now then, I say the answer to all that is given so perfectly in this verse that we're looking at this evening. For here we are told exactly what the Christian message is. We've been saying what it isn't, and that's absolutely essential. Now we're going to say what it is. Here in the midst of all the calamities that are taking place round and about us, 
And amidst all of what our Lord calls the deceit and the lying and the false messages, in the midst of it all, here comes the Christian message, the truth of God, uttered by the Son of God himself. Now then, what is this message? If I have dwelt at such length on what the message is not, what is it? Well, let him answer for himself. The first thing he says is this. This gospel, this gospel, what a word. But it is the opening word, always of the New Testament message. That's why I read to you just now that first chapter of the gospel according to St. Mark. The beginning of what? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We talk about our four gospels. I'm preaching out of the gospel according to St. Matthew. And that is what our Lord said here to his followers on that occasion. They said, now when are these things going to happen? When is to be the time of your coming? When is the end of the world to take place? And on he goes and speaks. And then he says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached for a witness unto all nations in all the world. And then shall the end come. This gospel. Well, what is this? Well, the very term tells us essentially what it is, doesn't it? Gospel means good news. Good news. My dear friend, as you came into this church tonight, did you realize that you were coming to listen to good news? That's what it's called. He calls it himself. It's good news. And you notice his other term. This gospel of the kingdom, he says, shall be preached. Now, that can be translated much better than that. What that word preached means is proclaim, broadcast, use the microphone, put on the power, let the whole world listen to it. Proclaimed, if you like another word, heralded. In the old days, you see, they hadn't got their wireless and so on, but they used to have men who were heralds, and they went round and they blew trumpets, and they had some sort of a megaphone, they had a naturally good voice, and what did they do? Well, they stood and they called upon everybody to listen. They'd got something to announce. They'd got good news to proclaim. A proclamation of good news. They came to the people and said, Listen, we've got something to say to you. Now, anybody who's at all familiar with the Bible will know that that is the note that runs right through it from beginning to end. Take that perfect lyrical expression of it. In the 40th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, he's doing the same thing. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, proclaiming something. Make ready, he says, the highway for the coming of this great one. Good news. Something to be heralded, something to be proclaimed. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Why am I staying with it? Well, I'm doing it quite deliberately for this reason. That the first test, which must always be applied to anything that claims to be the Christian message, is just this test. Is it good news? For it, if, it, if it isn't good news, it is not the gospel. Gospel is good news. Now then, you see, apply this test to the things that we've been considering on the previous Sunday evenings. 
If we were to spend our evening here tonight with my protesting against the hydrogen bomb and the atom bomb and saying that you must rise up and sign petitions or that you must lie on the road somewhere so that people can't go and do this or that, is that good news? Where's the good news in that? If I addressed you here this evening and said, now I want you all to sign a petition with me which we're going to send up to 10 Downing Street. We're going to protest against this, that and the other. Where's the good news, I ask? Where is the gospel? No, no, that's not gospel. And yet it is so often pastor's gospel. And I'm concerned about this, I say, because uh, I am indeed convinced that it is these misrepresentations that are keeping so many people outside the church and the kingdom of God. The church has so often given the impression that she is just a society to protest against things. Protesting against war, protesting against drink, to protesting against tobacco, to protesting against this, that, and the other. That's no gospel. A protest isn't a good news message. That's not something to be heralded and to be proclaimed. You don't send your town crier out for that. No, no. It's good news. And negative protestations and criticisms are not good news. And in the same way, exactly, with the people who think that this gospel is just a bit of moral teaching. And a call to us to read the Sermon on the Mount and then to put it into practice and to agitate politically and so on. I ask again, in the name of God, where is the good news in that? If I did nothing here this evening but hold before you the Ten Commandments and urged upon you to live them, I shouldn't be preaching the gospel. That's not good news, that's damnation. Because nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. If I just stood here and, and shouted out at you a number of ethical principles and said, that's the life you're supposed to live. If I imitated the example of these clever people who say they can hold on to the Christian ethic and shed its doctrines, where's the good news, I ask? If I'm told that it all remains with me and that I've got to live a good life by using my willpower, I say I'm doomed, I'm damned. That's not gospel. That's condemnation. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. This gospel of the kingdom shall be heralded and proclaimed. What does he mean? Well, he's saying this. Here he is, you see, painting his dark picture of the future. Telling these people not to expect peace and comfort and plenty and that everybody listened to their message and come crowding into the kingdom of God, not at all. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, cheating, lying, deceit, envy, cruelty, malice, bitterness, spite. That's the world, he says, and it'll get worse and worse. Here he is painting his dark picture, then suddenly this gospel of the kingdom shall be heralded. Well, what is it? Well, you see, it comes in like this as a flash of light into the darkness and into the hopelessness of this terrible condition of the world because of sin. What he's saying, in effect, is this. That in spite of all that he's saying about the world and which is going to be so true about the world, there is a way of escape. There is a way of deliverance. We are not irretrievably doomed to this destruction that is coming. 
That's what he said. And that is why it's good news. Well, now then, the question before us is, what is the good news? Well, it doesn't need any arguing to say, does it, that this isn't something men's going to do? We've seen already that men can do nothing. What men does is to produce wars and rumors of wars, and you'll never change him. Man is evil. There's evil in his heart. Whence come wars among you, asks James. And he answers his own question. Come they, come they not, he says, even from the lust that is within you. Oh, how superficial is the thinking of men today. What right have you to expect nations to behave in a different way from that in which the individual behaves? While there is selfish and greed, selfishness and greed in the individual heart, they will be in the nations because a nation is nothing but a collection of individuals. And as I've often argued it like this, while there are men left who look upon the wife of another man and desire her and say, I'm going to have her at all costs. While individuals are doing that, nations are going to do the same thing. How monstrous it is to expect that national morality can be different from individual and personal morality. And this is the cause of all the trouble. And it's there, it's in the heart of man. So man is not going to do anything. The good news is not that man is capable of action. Well, what is it? Oh, it is to tell us about God's action. That's the good news. This good news, this message is about God's action. And what is it? Well, this is the message that is announced in this book which we call the Bible. From the very beginning to the very end. You know that is what the biblical message is. The biblical message in the Old Testament as well as in the New is the Gospel. It is the good news of God's action. He began announcing it away back in the third chapter of Genesis in verse 15 in the Garden of Eden. You remember how it happened. Here is the whole story in a sense. Man rebels and disobeys and he brings chaos upon his world and he doesn't know what to do and he hides himself behind the trees. But God comes to him. God begins to address him and he's afraid at first. He says, God's going to destroy us but God calls him out. And what does he tell you? Well, he gives him a message of good news. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. God's going to do something. God comes down into the chaos produced by men. And he says, it isn't the end. It isn't all that's got to be said. I'm coming in. I'm going to do something. So the gospel is the message concerning what God is going to do and has done and supremely what he does in his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's gospel. Good news. Very well, what is the news in detail? Now this evening I can only hope to deal with it in general. And I'm dealing with it in general in particular because I think people miss it because they tend to particularize too quickly. Let's have a general view of this good news. What is the message about? Well, you notice how he puts it. This gospel of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. He's picturing the world in its doom and its disaster. But he says now, while all that's going on, this gospel of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom. 
Now then, here is the answer to our question as to the content of the Christian message of good news. The kingdom, this kingdom. Again, I say that anybody who's ever read the four Gospels will have noticed the frequency with which this word kingdom is used. Did you notice how there in that first chapter of Mark we had it? We are told that after John had been beheaded, the Lord Jesus Christ himself began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom. You read the parables in this gospel according to St. Matthew. They're parables of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like unto this or that. All this talk in these four gospels about this kingdom. Well, what does it mean? He says, that's the good news. It's the good news about this kingdom. Well, what is this kingdom, says someone? Well, I've been using two terms that tell us a great deal about it. Sometimes he calls it the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, you see at once the contrast, don't you? Here are we on earth and we belong to various earthly kingdoms. Kingdom of Great Britain, France, all these various states, kingdoms, call them what you like. And we understand them and we know all about them and their politics and their affairs and all that they're doing and all that they shouldn't be doing. We're all so familiar with it and we're all bound up in it. Ah, he says, that isn't the message. This message of the kingdom, what kingdom? The kingdom of heaven? This isn't like the earthly kingdoms. This is something entirely different from everything we've ever seen and have ever known. This is a kingdom that belongs to another realm altogether. We understand these other kingdoms. We're on their own level and we look horizontally as it were at them. Ah, but this is a kingdom of the heavens. This is something that comes down. This is something that comes out of another sphere. This is not something that man produces. It's something that God gives. The kingdom of the heavens. Now that's, you know, the message of the whole Bible. The message of the whole Bible can always be put in this form. The Bible comes to us and says, look here, the trouble with you is that you're living only for the seen and the visible. And you know nothing about the unseen. But the unseen is there. The unseen is the real. The seen is going to vanish and disappear. But the unseen is going to remain. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Oh, we are surrounded by a realm which is spiritual, intangible, unseen. Earth, yes, we know all about earth, but what do we know about heaven? And about the heavens, there's the realm. That's the message of the kingdom. There is another kingdom that is unlike all these kingdoms of the world. Now, in putting it like that to you, I am, in a sense, you know, giving you a key to the understanding of the whole of the Bible. You go back to your Old Testament. And you'll find it there, you'll find it preached constantly. The prophets were always preaching it. Do you remember in the prophecy of Daniel, for instance? There was a great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had a dream. He was a great king, a mighty ruler, a great emperor. He had a dream one night and he saw an image. With gold and silver and brass and iron... Marvelous power. What's this? Oh, it's the representation of the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of the earth. 
And then, in the vision, he saw a stone coming out of a mountain, just an ordinary stone. And this stone smote his image and smashed it. And then it began to grow and to develop until it filled the whole earth. What's all that about? Well, it's just this theme, you see, that into the kingdoms of men comes this kingdom of the hymns, this unseen kingdom. Or again, let me take the other phrase. Ah, remember, under heaven, we must also say this. It's the contrast of the nature of the kingdom, not only its location, as it were, but also its whole character. We are of the earth earthy. This is of the heavens. It's coming down. And then take the other term, it is the kingdom of God. Ah, there you've got again your contrast. Not the kingdom of men, not the kingdom of governments, not the kingdom of earthly rulers and potentates, but God's kingdom. Or, uh, let me put it like this, not the kingdoms of this world, which are being governed and ruled, according to this book, by the devil, by Satan, but the kingdom that is ruled by God, the kingdom of God. You'll read in the book of Revelations, the kingdom of this world have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. That's the contrast. What does it mean? I say it means this, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the realm in which God rules and reigns in the hearts and in the lives of men. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom about which our Lord is speaking. Oh, we've been talking about these kingdoms of the world. God doesn't reign in the heart and in the lives of men and women who belong to the world. No, no. They are governed by the devil. They are governed by the world and the flesh and the devil and their own lusts and passions and desires. That's what's governing them. They belong to that kingdom of darkness. But there's another kingdom, says our Lord, where God reigns. He reigns in the hearts and in the minds and in the lives of the citizens that belong to this kingdom. That's what he means in general by this message, this gospel of the kingdom. But again, I can imagine somebody asking, well, what does all this mean? What are you trying to say to us? We'll agree with you that those are the terms that are used in the gospels, but what does it mean exactly? Well, all I want to do this evening is to give you a bird's eye view of the biblical teaching concerning this. This is the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. It is the Old Testament as well as the New. And I'm deliberately looking at it in general this evening and giving you a bird's eye view of it because, as I say, men and women become so immersed and lost in details. You know, there are people who even read this 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and they bring out their calendars, and they try to make their calculations. They are trying to decide when the end of the world is going to come, and they miss the whole message. What is this great teaching about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? I can put it very simply in this form. It is the message that tells us about God's action in this world. Here is the good news. If I didn't believe this, I'd be the profoundest pessimist in the world this evening. It is this. 
In spite of all that the Bible tells us about the world as such and its future and its judgment and its damnation and destruction, that is not the whole story. That is true. That is going to happen. But it isn't all. The good news is this, that though man is a sinner and a fool and brings chaos and calamity and destruction upon himself, God has not finished with mankind. He hasn't turned his back upon the world. It deserved that, but he hasn't done it. Human history is not just a drifting to destruction. There is something else. There is another aspect to the story. And I'd like to put it to you at this, this evening in this general form. What is God's relationship to history? Now, my friends, I'm asking you to think this evening. You see, people say this gospel of yours is sob stuff. Now, I'm going to make you think. I'm going to tax you. I beg of you, listen to me carefully. I'm trying to give you a summary of the whole of the biblical message. We'll come to the details again. What is God's relationship to history? I'm summarizing the biblical teaching, and here's the first principle. God is in control of human history. What you said, you mean to say that God is in control of the world and human history tonight, in spite of all that you've been saying about it yourself? My answer is, he is. Well, you say, why is the world as it is? The answer of the Bible is that God permits that. God, in his infinite and everlasting wisdom, permits evil. He doesn't create it. He doesn't produce it. He hasn't ordained it. But he permits it. I'm not going into the question this evening as to why he permits it. I can imagine many answers. Here's one that's enough for me. I think God permits evil in order to teach men the truth about himself. Man never thinks, you see, that he can manage his world and make a perfect world out of it. And that he doesn't need God. He thinks he has the capacity and the capability of running the world and keeping it perfectly ordered. Very well, God seems to say, I'll just let you carry on and you'll soon discover where you are and what your size is. He permits it. I'm often reminded, you know, of what I used to see and hear of certain old farmers doing in the part of the country where I was brought up. Sometimes uh, young men, boys, would come down, yes, from this city of London and from other places. They said they wanted to learn how to be farmers. And so they came down to some of these old country bumpkins, these old farmers who knew nothing. And, of course, having come from London, they knew everything about everything, farming included, and they needed no instruction at all. But the old farmers had a very clever and a very subtle way of teaching them and of dealing with them. It was this. Once the farmer saw that this was a young man who knew everything and who was impervious to any instruction, his method was, well, let him carry on. And when he'd been thrown from the backs of a number of horses and had stuck a number of forks into his feet and things like that and had half killed himself in carrying too big a load each time, he was ready to listen and to pay a little attention to the instruction. The best way of teaching sometimes is to permit the know-all to have his own way. 
It's the only way he will learn. God permits evil. He allows certain things to happen, but the fact that he allows them doesn't mean that he's not in control. He is still in control. Indeed, I want to emphasize that as my second point under this heading. God, though he permits a lot of evil, nevertheless controls the evil that is in this world. That's very plain biblical teaching. Let me give you some illustrations of what I mean. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans at the beginning of chapter 13, says, Let every man be subject to the higher powers, for the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, he was writing to Roman citizens, to people who were under the government of the Roman emperor at that time. And he says, it is your business as Christians to be subject to these powers that be. Why? Well, the powers that be are ordained of God. God has ordained all these. You know, human government is not a human device. It isn't a human invention. It is God who divided up the nations. It is God who has introduced the whole principle of law and order and government. It is God who has decided that there should be magistrates and that they bear not the sword in vain. Why? Well, you see, if God hadn't done that, this world, well, it would have become hell centuries ago. God has put a limit upon the possibility of evil. He has ordained all these orders of government and all these ways of keeping sin and evil within bounds. But he doesn't do it only by means of governments. And incidentally, let us remember this. It is God who ordains that evil, I say, may be kept within bounds. So it is God that ultimately ordains a police force and laws and legal enactments and judges and punishment. Yes, I will go further. It is God who has ordained that evil in any form must be kept within bounds. And if he takes the form of a state that's gone mad and worships a man called Hitler, I say that he is to be restrained forcibly according to this biblical teaching. That's a part of Christianity. Evil has got to be restrained. And if it arms itself, I say it must be kept down by bigger arms. But that's militarism, says someone. It is nothing of the sort. It is the biblical teaching about the powers that be which are ordained by God. If you show me a nation that goes out in an aggressive war, I say that is wrong. If this nation engages in an aggressive war, it is to be denounced. But a war whose object is to restrain evil in its violence is a war that is compatible with Christianity. The powers that be are ordained of God. Evil is to be restrained according to the teaching of the Bible itself. But he doesn't do it only, I say, by means of governments. He does it through culture. He gives gifts to people and through this culture sin is controlled. That's the whole of education. Education is never going to reform the world, but it can control the manifestations of evil in the world. It can do no more, but it can do that. That's the meaning of medicine. That is indeed ultimately the meaning of providence itself. God is controlling the manifestations of evil. And the third thing that I would say under this heading, I'll put in this form. 
God shows that he is in control of this world by manifesting his wrath upon it. Isn't that the message of the Bible? Didn't God show his hatred of the action of Cain when he murdered his brother? Isn't the flood a manifestation of God's wrath and judgment upon men? Isn't the Tower of Babel the same thing? Isn't the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah the same thing? Isn't what God did to some of these nations that attacked the children of Israel? Isn't it the same thing? God is there, though he permits a lot. He comes in and he punishes. He even punished his own children of Israel, his own nation, his own people. God is in control. And I believe that God is punishing the sin of men even at this present hour. He is revealing his wrath. And if you want to know how he is doing it, I commend you to go home tonight and to read the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Start at verse 18 and go right on to the end. And you will see there that God sometimes punishes the sin of men by just abandoning him to his sin, allowing horrible perversions and ugly foul things to come in and to make the whole atmosphere of society a stench and a foulness, a dung heap. That's one of God's ways of manifesting his wrath and of showing that he is still in control of human history. But let me go to my second principle, which is this one. That God not only is in control of history, but that God is acting in history. What do I mean? God is acting in history. Oh, I don't mean I say again that he's going to reform it or to change it. No, no. What he's doing is this, and this is the message of the kingdom. God is setting up in this history that man produces and brings into being another history. The history of this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. This is what God is doing in history. Now, as you read your Bible, you see it so plainly and clearly. There's a great deal of history here, absolutely general, all the nations of the world. But then suddenly into the midst of this comes another kingdom, another people, God's people. And you read the history of these people. There are two histories in the Bible. The history of God's people, the history of everybody else. And they're running parallel. That's what God is doing in history. God is creating a people, a kingdom, a history which consists of people whom he's saving out of and from the doom that is coming upon the world. That's what the kingdom of God means. God is gathering and collecting a people for himself. Listen to him putting it in the writings of the Apostle Peter. Ye, he says to the Christians, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, which means a people for God's own possession. A people for God himself. That's what God is doing. Out of the masses of the people who belong to the world, God is calling out for himself a people for his own possession. He's putting them on one side. He's building up a kingdom. There's a new race, a new people, and they've got their own history, which differs from that other general history, though it's in the same world, and though it's in a sense running parallel to it. That's the good news. That isn't the only history. There is this other history. Oh, can I put it to you? How can I put it to you? Oh, let us go back to Genesis 3.15 again. There's the beginning of it all. 
Here is men, the men and the woman in sin, and the chaos has come down, and they're going to be thrust out of the garden, and they've got to earn their bread by the sweat of their brows, and there are going to be briars and thorns and diseases and wars. Is that all? No, no. God comes down and says, I'm going to do something about this. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Now there is the first promise about this other kingdom, about this other history, about this activity of God, about this salvation of people, of bringing them out of that into this, and thereby saving them. God's own people, a people for his own peculiar possession. What is this history? Let me summarize it briefly as I close. I can, it's all there in Genesis 3.15. Here's the first thing. There is going to be a struggle in this world between these two kingdoms, between these two peoples. I am going to set enmity, said God, between thy seed and his seed. Ah, there's the devil, you see. And he's got men under his power, and man is in his kingdom. Ah, says God, I'm going to start another kingdom through the seed of the woman. And I'm going to set enmity between thy seed and his seed. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a clash. There's going to be a conflict. And that's the whole story of the Bible. The conflict between God's people and the people of the devil. The conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth. This fight between good and evil, right and wrong, light and darkness. On it goes. That's the first thing. And then he graciously makes this wonderful promise. That he's going to help and to deliver his own people. That he will not leave them to themselves. They'd be helpless face to face with the devil, this one who came in and tempted Adam and Eve in their absolute perfection. He tempted them and they fell. Man can't stand against him. God says, I'll stand. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. I'm going to give one power that will defeat him and finally destroy him. And his people are going to be delivered. So he calls upon men and women to listen to this message. This gospel of the kingdom, this good news, he says, listen to it, believe it, repent, cry out, and I'll deliver you. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message from beginning to end. And then, do you see, everyone who believes this message is separated from that old world. That world that is doomed and is going to be damned and destroyed and whose citizens are going on to a perdition of endless misery and unhappiness. Men and women who believe this message of this other kingdom are taken out of it and are put into the new kingdom. There's a separation. Don't you see it right through the Bible? Abel, who believed God's message, Cain, his brother, who didn't believe God's message. There's your division. There it is at once. The two sons of the same parents. Abel, Cain. Abel in the kingdom of God. Cain remaining in the kingdoms of the world and of the devil. Noah and his family. The rest of the whole world. Destroyed. Drowned. Abel, Noah, and his family saved, rescued, redeemed. You see the separation? 
God's people, all the others, follow it on. God suddenly calls a man called Abram who lived in pagan, a pagan society in a place called Ur of the Chaldeas. And he called him out. Come out, he said. Where am I going, said Abram. I won't tell you, said God. I simply call you out. And he went out, we are told, not knowing whither he went. He'd heard the message. He saw the evil. He heard the word of deliverance and of salvation. The call which said, come out. Separate, come out from amongst them. And out he went, not knowing whither he was going. So Abram was separated from the citizens of Ur of the Chaldees. And then he becomes a nation. And so you find in the Old Testament this major division. The children of Israel, the people of God, and all the other nations that were round and about them. That's the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that's going to be saved from the destruction. And on and on it goes. There's even a division in Israel between the true prophets and the false prophets. All are not of Israel, who are Israel. There's a division even there. Oh, if you want a perfect representation of all that I'm trying to say, let me give you another bit of work to do when you go home. Read the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. And what you find there? Well, you find a gallery of these men who have heard the message of God. They've come out. Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses. You see, Moses might have gone on being the son of Pharaoh's daughter and a great prince and a great captain. But he heard this call, and he responded, and he separated himself, esteeming it to be greater riches to suffer and to endure shame with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. All these people in Hebrews 11 are men who accounted themselves strangers and pilgrims in the earth. They realized the world is doomed to destruction, and they heard the voice calling them, and they responded, and they went out. They're in the kingdom of God. They were fools for a while in the eyes of the world. But finally, they shine out in the glory of heaven. Kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdoms of this world. And now, of course, it is supremely in Jesus Christ. And all who believe his message and all who come to him and who give their lives to him. He's calling people out. He came on earth to do it. He died to do it, as I'm going to show you on subsequent Sunday evenings. But that's his message. Come out from among them. Realize that you can be saved, that you're not of necessity involved in the doom and the disaster that is coming upon the world. That's what he's saying here. These things are going to happen, but this message of the kingdom must be heralded and proclaimed as a witness among all the nations everywhere. And he says, this will go on, until the end. And what does that mean? It means this, that the God who is controlling history and who is acting in it is going to end it. God is in control of history to that extent. There is a day coming when God will put an end to human history. When he will have destroyed evil and all that belong to it and to its realm. And all his people shall be safely gathered in.
the final separation of the sheep and goats. All who belong to God and all who do not belong to God. What our Lord is saying here is that that is coming. This gospel is to be preached until that day comes. But then it will have finished. And the fate of men and women will be settled to all eternity. And the last judgment will be pronounced. Now I've given you a bird's eye view of it. That's the message, the gospel of the kingdom. My dear friend, have you heard it? In the name of God I beseech you, stop thinking about these bombs and wars. That sort of thing is to go on and it cannot be stopped. The question is, what's going to happen to you? We all begin life by belonging to the world, this world that is doomed, that is to be judged and destroyed. But here comes a message from God to tell me that God has taken action which can save me out of that. He's even sent his son into the world in order to deliver me out of it. I needn't be involved in that. I can be in a position in which I can say, let the worst come to the worst. It cannot touch me. I belong to the kingdom of God, a kingdom which can never be moved, a kingdom which is eternal, a kingdom which is in the heavens, a kingdom which is spiritual and which finally will materialize upon the earth and God shall reign over all. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There'll be no sin there. There'll be no sorrow there. There'll be no sighing there. There'll be no weeping there. There'll be no darkness there. It'll be God's kingdom, perfect and absolute. And I shall be in it. Have you heard this message? This gospel of the kingdom that calls you to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved in and by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the greatest fool in the world tonight, is a man who's hoping that the world is going to become a better place. It never will. It's doomed. Christ says so. But you can be saved out of it. Listen to the message the gospel of the kingdom. Believe it and press into the kingdom. 